From New York, this is John Brown Today, a podcast, and I'm your host, Louis A. DeCaro Jr. As many know, The Battle Hymn of the Republic was written by Julia Ward Howe during the U.S. Civil War. A self-taught philosopher and poet, Julia was somewhat unhappily married to the much older physician and activist Samuel Gridley Howe, who was one of John Brown's warmest supporters, one of the so-called Secret Six. According to Laura Richards and Maud Elliott, Julia's first biographers, the story of the writing of the Battle Hymn of the Republic begins in the fall of 1861, when Julia went to Washington, D.C. with her husband, also in the company of Governor and Mrs. Andrew of Massachusetts and the Reverend James Freeman Clark. Her biographers say that after observing a military review, this entourage found themselves surrounded amidst a long stream of marching men in blue uniform. With their carriage at a standstill, they decided to sing aloud to pass the time. But when they sang John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave, his soul is marching on, this brought a reaction from the soldiers, some of whom shouted, Good for you, to Julia Ward Howe and her companions. At this point, the story continues, Clark turned to her and said, Mrs. Howe, why do you not write some good words for that stirring tune? Julia excitedly responded that she often wished to do so. However, when the story of the Battle Hymn of the Republic is told, emphasis is often placed on the inspiration that followed. How early the next morning, as Julia Ward Howe lay quietly in bed, the famous words, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, came sweeping upon her like the marching of the soldiers she had seen the day before. Richards and Elliot portray the episode as if Julia was channeling, quote, the voice of the nation speaking through her lips, end quote. After that voice was silent, she hopped out of bed, grabbed at a stub of a pencil, and scrawled in the gray twilight the battle hymn of the Republic. After writing down her battle hymn lyrics, she slipped back into bed, fell asleep again, and forgot the words by the time she had awakened. Working from her scribbled notes, she finally published her Battle Hymn of the Republic as a poem in the February 1862 edition of the Atlantic Monthly. While critics somewhat praised the battle hymn, the poem also found favor in the Union Army, and according to her biographers, Julia soon heard it sung in chorus by soldiers from time to time. Then, it seems her lyrics really took off, becoming quite popular in the North, printed in newspapers, in Army hymn books, and on broadsides. It had become, as her biographers put it, the word of the hour, and the Union armies were now marching to its swing. Given the drama and trauma of the Civil War, as well as the subsequent association of the Battle Hymn of the Republic with the canonized image of Abraham Lincoln that prevails in the United States, it is no wonder that the Battle Hymn has become a central psalm in the canon of civil religion in this nation. Of course, this is the official version of Julia Ward Howe's Battle Hymn. In my research, I've had occasion to think somewhat differently about both its background and what it actually signified at the time. As a critical baseline for evaluating the official version established by Julia Ward Howe and her biographers, I have found the personal writings of James Freeman Clark to be most insightful. Clark was a Unitarian minister and an abolitionist, and entries he made in his diary include that occasion in 1861 when supposedly he suggested to Julia Ward Howe that she write some good words for that stirring tune. Keep in mind, too, that by Julia's own admission, she had already been thinking about renovating the John Brown song. To put it another way, 
One question is simply, to what degree she already had begun to ponder the lyrics of the battle hymn. Clearly, Julia had already formulated a theological framework for her hymn, one that entailed divine judgment upon the United States for the sin of black enslavement. Equally notable is the problem with Julia's recollection in comparison with Clark's 1861 diary entry. In fact, he apparently wrote of the same incident in which the Howes and Andrews were in Washington, D.C., even dating it as Saturday, November 16th. Indeed, Clark's diary not only conflicts with Julia's reminiscence, but it does not actually mention the presence of the house. Clark did record the singing of the John Brown song by Union soldiers on that day, but his entry is absent of any reference to Julia Ward Howe. But Julia was not inventing the episode. It seems that she confused it with a worship service that she attended the following day, on Sunday, November 17, 1861, when Clark himself presided over religious exercises for the Massachusetts 14th Regiment in Virginia. According to Clark's diary, a Colonel William Green, who was also a Unitarian clergyman, summoned his regiment to sing songs and hymns for Clark, a New York Tribune correspondent, Governor and Mrs. Andrews, and perhaps the House. In this entry, Clark says that the most notable song presented by the soldiers was a song written at Fort Warren, Massachusetts, one that clearly had become a song about the abolitionist John Brown. Clark wrote further that several times subsequently he heard the John Brown song being sung in the woods of Virginia, presumably by Union soldiers. Clark praised the song in his diary, saying that it was indeed true that the abolitionist John Brown's soul was marching on, particularly in the growing hostility towards slavery that was rising in the North. Is not slavery recognized more and more as the cause of the war, Clark wrote, the deadly foe of the Union, the poison in our cup, the enemy of true democracy and true Christianity, and something that must be destroyed if the life of this nation is to be saved? So now we have to retrace ourselves a bit. What about the John Brown song itself? In this regard, there is no better source than the late Boyd Stutler, who died in 1970, and whom I like to call the godfather of John Brown scholars. Stutler never completed his own biography of Brown, but he had no equal as a researcher and documentary scholar. And to no surprise, Stutler did extensive research on the background and origins of the John Brown song. Stutler wrote that the melody of the John Brown song that became Julia Ward Howe's Battle Hymn of the Republic was originally sung in North America as a Methodist revival song. As to the lyrics of the John Brown song, Stutler identified the original John Brown as a volunteer soldier who had been stationed at Fort Warren in Boston Harbor at the time of the outbreak of the Civil War. The song apparently evolved from the frequent ribbing that this Sergeant Brown received from fellow soldiers because he shared the same name as the martyred abolitionist who had been hung less than two years before the start of the war. It seems the original version of the John Brown song was a spoof, a jest, about the fact that although John Brown was dead, he could still be seen marching about Fort Warren, backpack and all. Stutler wrote that this hazing of poor Sergeant John Brown was soon put to music especially since a good number of the Boston volunteers at Fort Warren were singers and musicians, including 
James Greenlee, who happened also to be the organist at the Harvard Church at Charlestown, Massachusetts, when another sergeant came up with the now-famous line, John Brown's body lies moldered in the grave. These cultured Boston volunteers came up with a number of stanzas that Greenleaf put to the now-famous melody. As Stutler also observed, the original John Brown song was not only a spoof, but it was the stuff of unseasoned volunteer soldiers, the activity of young men who had not yet tasted the bitterness of war. They could not have imagined that their little tune, with its playful pun, would become inhabited by the ghost of John Brown the abolitionist amidst the blood and fire of civil war. From the onset, however, the song embarrassed the more sophisticated Union set. In fact, one attempt early in the war was made to revise the song, making it about the recently fallen Colonel Elmer Ephraim Ellsworth of New York City, Ellsworth was murdered by an outraged secessionist after he pulled down a rebel flag that was flying atop a hotel at Alexandria, Virginia in 1861. Young, handsome, and dashing, Ellsworth led an elite group of fighters called Zwaves, sometimes referred to as his pet lambs. Although Ellsworth was a beloved figure, the revision did not take. Union soldiers insisted on singing about John Brown, although a line about Ellsworth's pet lambs seems to have remained in some versions of the John Brown song, something that only a fanatical biographer like me would appreciate, since John Brown was a successful sheep and wool man in the 1840s, and when lambing season was cold, it was not uncommon to find his kitchen warmly heated as a nursery for newborn lambs. The point is that the John Brown song was subject to political revision from the beginning of its popularity, and it is likely then that Julia Ward Howe was among the more refined abolitionist set who were embarrassed by it. My own sense is that while the source of dissatisfaction with the John Brown song may involve a number of things, I suspect it was clearly as political as it was aesthetic. Certainly, the John Brown song probably grated on the abolitionist community because it was a soldier's ditty instead of a high-minded anthem. The original words of the John Brown song were silly, and it completely lacks any sense of moral grandeur. Not only were the lyrics devoid of any actual reference to John Brown, the abolitionist, but even references to the Almighty were tongue-in-cheek. With words about John Brown's backpack, his lambs, and three cheers for the Union, It is not hard to imagine why high-minded abolitionists like Julia Ward Howe and James Freeman Clark would have found it annoying. But then again, there was that line, John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave, his soul goes marching on. In a real sense, I guess the New England abolitionists simply did not know what to do with the John Brown song. Even though their opinion of the martyred Brown was far more generous than that of the typical white northerner, The song was ridiculous and irrelevant, and none of it had anything whatsoever to do with the abolitionist agenda. The problem was that none of the silly stanzas of the John Brown song seemed to have mattered once it began to spread. Indeed, as it spread, first through the army and then through the rest of the nation, the song had shed its comic skin, revealing an entirely different persona. In my opinion, this is where the political aspect of the song became more of a problem than the aesthetic issue for the abolitionist elites, especially. Indeed, it was not just the song's silly origins that bothered people like Julia Ward Howe, but more so the song that it had become, now that it had become associated with the militant abolitionist John Brown. Indeed, 
in the mouths of soldiers and slaves, too. The John Brown song, really, that first stanza about his moldering body, had become a self-standing prophetic oracle, almost overnight, a burning testimony of such historical and spiritual force that it demanded the undivided attention of the nation. It was, if you will, a kind of grassroots anthem rising from the viscera of the nation's own spiritual and political crisis. As such, the John Brown song was raw, non-institutional, and even uncontrollable. In this light, it is no surprise to read what Julia Ward Howe personally thought of John Brown, the abolitionist, at the time of his death, for it may also give us insight to her gut reaction to the John Brown song as she heard it in the early days of the Civil War. On November 6, 1859, while Brown was still awaiting hanging in Virginia, Julia wrote to her sister that, quote, no one knew of Brown's intentions at Harper's Ferry, but Brown himself and his handful of men. The attempt, I must judge, insane, but the spirit heroic. I should be glad to be as sure of heaven as that old man may be following right in the spirit and footsteps of the old martyrs, girding on his sword for the weak and oppressed. His death will be holy and glorious. The gallows cannot dishonor him. He will hallow it. Julia Ward Howe's reading of John Brown is quite in synchronicity with the mixed feelings of many abolitionists at the time. On one hand, she saw him as a saint and a martyr. But on the other hand, she thought him insane in his methods, which probably meant more than simply the fact that he had seized a federal armory in Virginia, but that he had dared to use force in fighting slavery. In life, John Brown had grown somewhat resentful of the abolitionist establishment, which he saw as talk only. In turn, the abolitionist establishment was largely influenced by the pacifism of William Lloyd Garrison. The Harper's Ferry raid and Brown's subsequent hanging put the abolitionists in a difficult position. They wanted to praise him without affirming his methods. They loved him, but they were uncomfortable with him. At first, they may not have found the silly John Brown song acceptable to taste, but ultimately they were much more deeply graded by it. They wanted to sing an anthem that appealed to their vision of the war against slavery, and once the Civil War began, they wanted to forget John Brown altogether. But the song just wouldn't let them. Julia Ward Howe actually had met John Brown as a guest in her home, and she proudly recalled having opened the door to allow him to enter. But after Harper's Ferry, she was ideologically unsettled by the absolute course of action that he had taken. She may also have been unsettled by his extensive collaboration with blacks in the field and his intention of arming them with pikes to use against white people. Unlike John Brown, Julia held a low view of Africans, a view common among many anti-slavery whites. As Julia herself put it, the, quote, Negro among Negroes is a coarse, grinning, flat-footed, thick-skulled creature, lazy as the laziest brutes, end quote. Perhaps it was more edifying for her to think of slavery coming to an end at the hands of a noble throng of white soldiers dressed in blue than it was for something akin to the black uprising that John Brown had hoped to initiate. 
So I would suggest that Julia Ward Howe and others in her sphere of political and social association also were unsettled by the John Brown song because it celebrated a militant racial egalitarian far more than because it had been a silly soldier song. Quite inexplicably, the John Brown song had become something other than they, the pacifist abolitionist elites, could explain something entirely out of their control. I believe that after Julia Ward Howe and James Freeman Clark heard the John Brown song being sung by soldiers after a religious service in 1861, their design was really about getting it under control before it was too late. Now, fast forward with me 102 years later, 1963. We are in Washington, D.C. for the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom an event that many have taken as the quintessential moment of the civil rights era. But rather than following the conventional narrative of the March on Washington, let us refer to Malcolm X, whose testimony, in my opinion, is without question on this matter. From Malcolm's commentary shortly after the march, the events of August 28, 1963, had to be critically assessed. According to Malcolm's reading and witness, the origin of the March on Washington was the political, social, and spiritual force that emanated from the grassroots of the black community in struggle. In his famous critique of the march, which he delivered in a speech at the King Solomon Baptist Church in Detroit, Michigan on November 10, 1963, Malcolm documented how the white liberal establishment, guided by the John F. Kennedy administration, responded to this black grassroots movement by taking control of the march and rendering it as an event. It was a picnic, Malcolm called it, a circus with black clowns and white clowns. As Malcolm described it too, the liberal establishment had stepped in and re-scripted the march, taking control of the event both implicitly and explicitly by selecting orators and defining parameters of time and space. Malcolm's assessment was admittedly harsh, but the gist of his criticism was that white liberals demonstrated a certain inclination to control and manipulate the march in order to sustain their own agenda, even granting that the liberal agenda of 1963 was far better than the right-wing, segregationist agenda of that era. Still, Malcolm X recognized how the subtle and self-serving inclinations of institutional white liberalism had reshaped the march. His view of the March on Washington is an important alternative reading of this historic event, but to no surprise, Malcolm's perspective provides useful wisdom for reading the past, too, and I think it has significance for understanding what happened to the John Brown song, the raw, emergent version of the John Brown song, as it spread through the Union Army and then into the rest of the nation, was similarly a grassroots phenomenon that was born of the crisis of slavery. Contrary to Julia Ward Howe's biographers, it was the John Brown song that was the real word of the hour, not her battle hymn revision. Despite sympathy for Brown and his powerful witness on the gallows, abolitionist elites were unsettled by the force and significance of the John Brown song the way their ideological white heirs were put off by the raw spontaneity of black people's intention of marching on Washington in 1963. The song, like the march, had to be controlled. Despite its irreverent and facetious origin, the jester's song had given birth to a prophetic oracle, and the oracle had more power in a single verse. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave, but his soul goes marching on. 
than the entire abolitionist discourse as it had existed up to the time that the Civil War began. It was bad enough that John Brown himself, never a card-carrying member of any anti-slavery society, had stolen the thunder of the pacifist leader William Lloyd Garrison, and that he had taken the hearts of giants like Emerson, Thoreau, and Phillips. Now, even dead, John Brown was marching on in advance of the abolitionists, the power of his witness moving even beyond their ability to control it, let alone keep up with it. Contrary to what some might think, the Battle Hymn of the Republic is not the New Testament to the Old Testament of John Brown's body. They are not complementary in any sense. Indeed, the Battle Hymn of the Republic was intended as the institutional replacement of the John Brown song, a replacement that appeased white liberal sensibilities, neatly tucking the old man out of the way and replacing the song's zeitgeist verse with some reverent Unitarian and abolitionist poetry. Whereas the raw John Brown song had become an unlikely and ineffable oracle premised on the death of the old man in Virginia, Julia Ward Howe's Battle Hymn of the Republic was a professionally honed piece of abolitionist propaganda, not without its inspiration, mind you, but certainly premeditated and deliberate in its designs. Julia Ward Howe's poetry prevailed, just as the assassinated President Lincoln was posthumously reinvented as the great emancipator, further pushing John Brown into the distant memory of the United States. Reading the Battle Hymn of the Republic through layers of crimson sentimentality make it difficult to discern what actually had taken place in the early years of the Civil War. Today, not only is the powerful presence of martyr John Brown largely forgotten, but so is the rampant racism of Northern whites, the peculiarities, prejudices, and pride of the abolitionist community, and the compromising Lincoln who finally stumbled onto the right side of history before his own assassination. All has been blurred into one sentimental story. All in the Union have been rendered anti-slavery heroes. All in the South have been forgiven as noble, well-intended patriots. And the image of the liberated slave that prevails is one gratefully kneeling at the feet of Abraham Lincoln. But this is mythology. To understand the history of this nation, one must listen to the voices of slaves, not statesmen and their scribes. The truth is still in the John Brown song, not in the Battle Hymn of the Republic. In 1862, Daniel Ullman, an officer in the Union Army, fell sick with typhoid fever and was set aside to recuperate in Little Washington, Rappahannock County, Virginia. During his medical leave, Ullman daily heard enslaved blacks working in the fields nearby, slaves not manumitted because the Union Army respected the property rights of slaveholders in slave states prior to the Emancipation Proclamation. Lying on his cot, Ullman kept hearing the voices of black laborers singing, John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave, but his soul goes marching on. The singing of the John Brown chorus was daily and unrelenting, and when Ullman finally recovered, he sought out the slave owner and asked him why he permitted his slaves to sing that song. The slave owner replied that he did not permit them to sing the John Brown song. He just could not stop them from singing it. Now, even assuming that the audacity of these enslaved Africans was enhanced by the presence of the Union Army nearby, the point of Allman's report was clear. John Brown had won, and his soul was marching on. The North and its orators would have their battle hymn of the Republic, but the enslaved knew what was the real word of the hour. 
It was John Brown who had first come for them. It was John Brown who came into the South with a Bible and a gun. And it was John Brown whom the Virginians had hanged. But as far as they were concerned, the old man was still coming for them. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave, but his soul goes marching on. From New York City, this is Louis A. DeCaro Jr., and this is John Brown Today. John Brown's body lies a Lies a molded in the grave, his soul goes marching on.